0: 65 Podcast listeners, and uh, I hear we might have a few listeners who aren't 65 pilots, so welcome to you as well. I am Sam Haffensteiner, sitting here with me is Nate Shakespeare. How you doing, Shakes? Good, Sam. How's it going? Yeah, man. It's good to see you. Uh, this is Flight Suit Friday, and uh, we uh, we are excited to talk to you guys today about some uh, some cool topics. So first, uh, some shout-outs. <laughs> Right, Air Station New Orleans, uh, the King of SAR, I believe, in our uh, in our area expertise. Uh, a couple of great cases out there we wanted to highlight. First one uh, was the rescue on the uh, vessel Lulu Bell. Uh, Lieutenant Commander Miles Richardson, PIC, with uh, his co-pilot Lieutenant Andrew Sheffy. And then uh, AET two Jonathan uh, PD Miller. I got the uh, pleasure to serve with him in San Francisco, as well as t one Andrew Wagner. Sixty-two um, foot wreck fishing boat was fifteen nautical miles south of Panama City. Uh, lost all electrical power and was taken on water. Middle of the night, no uh, no illumination. Six to eight foot seas. Casa went out, located them. They got out there. Uh, had to shine all every light that they had just to get somebody to come out on deck. Dropped a radio went back to uh, Apalachicola for fuel, uh, and then executed a pretty demanding hoist. Uh, when we, The read-up says they were about between 9.5 to 10.0 on the uh, torque, torque scale there, so pretty standard hoist for the 65, I would say. Uh, no, that's, that's a tough one, guys. Uh, great work, especially getting uh, both members of the boat off a pretty slippery pilot house there. And then uh, also before Hurricane Sandy hit, Lieutenant Commander Dave Stern, uh, Dan Siders, the co-pilot, LT type, and uh, AMT-3 uh, Sanchez Cordero and AST-1 Brandon Hood went out uh, for a father who was with his kids. Apparently, the uh, he got washed out on his jet ski, um, didn't come back as as night fell. The kids uh, got, got a hold of the fire department and uh, they launched uh, New Orleans on that case. They spent... Uh, I th- believe about three hours searching for him. The guy was drifting for seven hours, overturned jet ski, six to eight foot seas right before the hurricane fell. Uh, so they, uh, that was a good one. At night, he didn't have any signaling device. So great job saving that life, guys.
1: Hey, and it chicks with the news this week. ATC is officially staying with our ROM at home policy. Um, we're not moving to force comms, much more stringent uh, HT ROM policy. Uh, so, before coming for any training here, it's just going to be two weeks of quarantine at home, uh, no leave. Pretty simple, definitely a big win for Coast Guard training. Yeah, where can they find that uh, policy at? You remember? Yeah, good question, Sam. Bunch of info on the uh, ATC portal, uh, yeah. but feel free to reach out to myself or your favorite Seven rep. Yeah, absolutely. Also, we're well into the Barber's H-65 Echo transition, and we're gearing up for North Bend uh, pretty soon here in just about another month and a half, and then we're taking a, a short break before we get started on months and months of uh, Hitron pilots coming to ATC. Yeah, that, that's going to last for, what, I feel like a year, six months, year, something like that? Sure, seems like it. I might not be here to see it. Yeah, I might actually it be hitting the road myself. So,
0: uh, I don't know where you're listening from today there, listeners, but uh, out there we've got... You know, iTunes now, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, just about anywhere you can find uh, a podcast. So always can just Google Flight Suit Friday in there and and you'll see us come up.
1: Yeah, great job, uh, Ryan Van Heij, getting this this going and widely distributed. Nice job. Crushing it. Working us hard, for sure.
0: All right, 65 listeners, time to get down to the brass tacks of this episode. Uh, today we're talking with uh, ops bosses, former ops bosses, and uh, current CEOs about uh, just their perspective on operations and, and and how they manage cases, how they go through risk assessments, and some of the fun stories they've had along the way. So today we have uh, Commander Brendan Hillary, if you could say hi, sir. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on. And uh, current skipper of uh, Air Station Savannah, if I'm uh, correct. That's right. All right. And uh, our other guest today is uh, Commander Drew Benke. I believe uh, you guys went to the Academy together, right?
2: That's true. Uh, Brendan was uh, fortunate enough
0: to uh, have me there. So it's good to be on. And uh, I understand you're back there. uh, You're working at the LDC uh, at the moment. Yeah, I took over as the uh, director
2: of training here at the uh, Leadership Development Center. So it's been a good time.
0: That's great. All right. Well, uh, let's just get uh, into some Quick background from the two of you guys. Uh, Commander Hillary. if you wouldn't mind just telling us where you've been stationed, uh, your current assignments, and uh, general background as as of now.
3: Sure. Sounds good, Tim. So I I started off, as you said, Academy grad. Uh, I did an afloat tour as an engineer down in Miami on the Cutter Valiant uh, Navy Flight School. Uh, Then I did my Nugget tour out at uh, Barber's with Drew, actually. And then, uh, from there went to Mobile and then, uh, I was down in the ASM branch teaching RWAI, a little bit of, um, AUF and, uh, flying with students, uh, on some stand stuff as well. And then, uh, a year after I got there, Drew showed up again and, uh, and let's see, after that, uh, I did an overseas tour in Ecuador working out of the embassy, which was pretty cool and, uh, back for a master's, uh, in D.C., out to Hawaii once more, uh, doing a liaison job with, uh, PACOM, the, uh, joint combatant commander, commander out there. And then, uh, my ops tour was in, uh, Humboldt Bay. It was a, uh, it was actually a response department head job out there, which was pretty cool. I didn't know a whole lot about what that was, uh, before I got into it, but it was very rewarding. And I highly recommend if anybody is interested in, uh, doing that flavor of an ops job, it, it was, it was outstanding. Um, met some great people and learned a lot of stuff. And now I'm here in Savannah, uh, as a CEO and, uh, another great job.
0: So, um, so that's where I've been and where I am now. That, that's awesome, sir. How, uh, how many years you've been in? What, what year are you at now? I just passed 20, uh, in May. Man, that's, that's gotta be a good feeling. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Uh, and then, uh, Commander Banky, are you, uh, ahead of him, just behind him? Uh, I know you guys said you went to the Academy together and,
2: yeah, I mean, uh, though Brendan, I uh, feel like I've been dragging him along in the Coast Guard and uh, you know giving everything he has. Now um, I'm actually behind him. <laughs> uh-huh. and I, I graduated. I graduated a year later, uh, and same same type of deal. Back then, we were uh, when we graduated, we went to a float tours, which actually might be weird to say as an aviator, but I really um, enjoyed that. And I think uh, all answers if you get the opportunity, uh, like leaving. Um, a session source to go to a float tour because you can always go aviation afterwards, but I think there's a lot of things to be gained there.
1: I see why you're back at the Academy. That makes sense.
2: You got it right. Yeah. that's to, to guide young minds, I guess you could say. <laughs> kind of the same thing what I was doing when I was off spots and XO and air stations. But, um, I guess, uh, so when I graduated, I went to the durable, um, down in Florida, uh, as well. It's a 210 there. They decommed a little bit earlier than I was expecting And so I got a chance to go to another ship, uh, another cutter out on the West Coast, um, the Coast Guard Cutter Monroe when it was out of the Alameda. Um, Did a deck watch officer and boarding officer gig, um, which was very rewarding. Had a good time with that. Then Navy flight school and then a nugget. And I got to go join um, uh, Brendan out in Hawaii. That was a uh, fun time. We probably have a lot of stories from that. I don't know if we're allowed to share all those, but good uh, cases when we were boat just in the cockpit starting off i believe brendan you got i think you were an ip there right you you
3: just made it at the very end yep i think uh i did i got my ip call shortly before i left um and uh yeah i got i, I don't know if we ever flew any flights together in that capacity but uh that was that was a great great to be able to do it uh, before showing up to mobile that was, that was a good thing
2: that's yeah, funny you don't remember becoming an ip because that was one of your first <sighs> check rides and that was one of the most miserable Um, flights of my life. Just kidding. Uh, That was a good Uh,
3: time. I do remember remember flying check rides with you, just not out there. (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) Right, a little different time. Uh, So then I got to follow Brendan down to uh, we actually had uh, one of my mentors, um, Commander Meyer, took over at the ASM branch. And so I followed Brendan down there and I took over for the AUF side when we were doing it for PWCS uh, back when uh, Port Angeles and San Fran and uh, uh, Houston all had the AUF program uh, that no longer exists. So that was fun standing those up and then seeing them get to sit back down. And then uh, Hitron as well. So helping out with uh, doing the stand stuff when they were first putting 65s out to Hitron. So that was very rewarding. From there, I got to go. Yeah, from there, I got to go to grad school, which is always a good gig if you can. Especially, you now, I guess after you become an AC now, they, they allow you to uh, look at the grad, grad school ticket. So that was, I got to do that out in San Diego State.
1: Ooh, was, rough uh, it,
2: it was, it was horrible. Um, yeah, well, how I made it through 15 <laughs> months there, it was uh, <laughs> kind of one of those gigs. And so then I got to drive back cross country with my wife back to uh, DC to do the uh, Force Comm training manager job. Um, again, got to work with all the different programs and learn how the factory works up there. So as a staff tour, um, wasn't like the Brendan Staff Tour, it sounds like, out in Hawaii again, but, you know, everyone's got to pay their penance, it sounds like. And uh, from there, I got rewarded, I would say, and got to go to be the Ops Boss of Savannah. Mm-hmm. Awesome program. Um, you're welcome, Brendan, for the awesome job we did there because it set you up for success. And I, uh, actually, I, I did that for two years, and then I took over as the XO um, for one year. So I only had to do the one year penance as the XO job. Uh, That's the real reward, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, a little different, right? It's definitely something you need to do. And, um, I wouldn't say anybody should shy away from it, but ops boss was definitely more of the, you know, uh, uh, I really like that, you know, a lot more cause you get to be more into the flight and stuff. And I actually got a lot more flight time uh, when I was ops boss and I was XO. Um, and now I'm back at the leadership development center as the training director doing my, uh, um, Back my force com gig so um, i've been in for about almost 20 years now so i'll hit 20 uh, uh this summer so
0: it been fun that's awesome yeah thanks for sharing sir um i'll need i'll kick it over to you to to dive into the ops stuff
1: Yeah, absolutely um so we had a uh, an ops of a like a response air station did you have some boat responsibilities with that uh commander hillary Yep, we call it uh, Response Department Head. It was
3: uh, up at Sector Humboldt Bay, awesome unit. Um, and we did have, uh, in addition to the aviation operations side of, of the job, you also run the command center, and you have uh, a surface operation uh, operations division that oversees uh, two, two surf stations, uh, one in Humboldt Bay, one down at Noyo River, uh, and ANT. And, uh, a couple, uh, 87 foot, uh, CPBs, one that was up in, uh, Crescent City at the time and one down in Humboldt Bay. Um, so it was, uh, that was a steep learning curve, man. But like I said, uh, it was a very, very rewarding, um, uh, tour. And, uh, I feel like I learned a lot and uh, especially about how, how other, um, um, other communities in the coast guard function and how we work together. It, and, uh, I, like I said, I highly recommend it.
1: Really cool. Yeah. your float background, probably prepped you for some of that. Is that, what does the coast guard do to like formally prepare you for, uh, the ops, whether it be an air station or like a response chief at a, a almost a group, I guess.
3: Yep. So, um, that uh, great question. The, uh, so the pipe, the training pipeline for that job was pretty extensive actually. Um, they have, uh, because you're doing the, you're, you're going to the training for, uh, for the operation, uh, ops officer side of the house, um, which is not quite as lengthy, but, uh, there, there is a, a formalized training program, which maybe Drew can speak to that with, uh, as a, um, force com rep. Uh, and then, but on the other, the other side of the house, the response department head, um, course is, I think about three weeks down in Yorktown. Then you need to go to star school, uh, which I don't remember how many weeks that was probably about maybe about a month. Um, and that's, uh, learning SAR ops, learning SAR policy. And then you do a one week SMC course and then some assorted other stuff. Um, unique thing about that when you're, when you're up there, you're not only taking ops calls from the aviation side, but you're also standing, uh, SMC for, uh, for the sector's AOR. And I think that's probably consistent at all the sector air stations.
1: Oh, that's really interesting because I think for a normal air station like uh, Commander Benke, when you're in Savannah, were you who's the SMC there? It's sector normally, right?
2: Correct. Yeah, we say, and then in Savannah, as Brandon can do attest to now, we have like two sectors that we work for there. So Charleston was our big one, and then down in Jacksonville as well. But that's basically where you get your SMCs at. So it's kind of nice having that um, person I was working with there too was a Commander uh, Tim. Well, now Captain Ethan He had an SMC background because he used to work at a a district. And it was really amazing to have that type of knowledge, like when you come into a case. And that Brendan probably can attest to that. And uh, definitely a worthwhile thing that maybe even some ops bosses should maybe get a small dose of it. I actually was one of those guys. I took a week course at the SMC course myself um, because I was in the force comm world before I came out. And I got a chance to dabble into that. Um, maybe a little bit too extensive, but it was uh, it, it was eye opening for sure.
1: Oh, that's awesome! Can you talk, uh, Commander Banky, just a little bit about what it is kind of like a vanilla aviation ops? Like, what what does the training stuff uh, look like? And then we'll we'll get into some of your experiences there.
2: Sure. So uh, right now, um, what we have is the uh, ATC mobile. I believe this year is supposed to be getting it back on course, but we have a uh, prospective ops boss course, and that was a uh, week long and. Really, what I should do is that drives you through like you know different things about the different things about like flight scheduling, and the big thing right is being an ops boss is you're called the chief pilot, and the big thing with that is you're really managing all the risks. So you need to like really have a good extensive knowledge of. You might not have like for Brendan and I at least I, I can talk for me. I was out of the cockpit for about five years before I came back to be the ops boss. So the big thing was same stick and rudder skills that I had back in the day when I was an IP at the top of my game, you know, kind of carried a little bit. And so, but really what I need to be on my game for was that risk management piece. And so that's what we really dived into for that course, I believe, to really understand like, you know, scheduling and how we're going to like pair people up. That was more of the uh, realm for our training to, to come into it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Do either of you um, take uh, ops calls before you were uh, like an ops officer? Your first tour, I guess, uh, Commander Hillary, I guess you were a rock star with the first tour IP. But did you take any ops calls out in Barber's?
3: I kind of did. We had, uh, I, I took them for for a few days uh, out there, but nothing nothing really extensively. No. Um, I mean, like as I said, a few days. But I wouldn't even really count it um, because it was it was so few and far between. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. And then of course in Mobile there was really no there was no opportunity for that um, with us down in the uh, in training department. Uh, didn't really happen there either. So yeah, I kind of I would say that I went in cold. I think and similar to Drew, I had a pretty good. I was out of the cockpit for almost six years uh, between the time I left Mobile and then came back to uh, flying up in Humboldt. So that was uh, it was definitely. Um, a, uh, a steep learning curve, like I said.
1: Yeah. You're trying to get back in the aircraft. And, and uh, I think as um, Commander Benke said, trying to be the chief pilot as well, that's gotta be quite the, quite the juggling act.
3: I'll tell you, it, it was humbling for me, I think. um, And for, so maybe that's a good, uh, a good thing uh, just to keep in mind for folks who, you know, you do uh, two or three operational tours and you might go do something out of the cockpit for a little while when you come back. Well, shoot, at the end of the time there in Mobile uh, or at the end of whatever your last operational tour is, you're probably pretty proficient. You're at the top of your game, right? You've been doing it for a while. Um, you're you're likely an IP at that point and, and probably have been for a little while. And then you go out and do something else and then come back in. And on top of all the responsibilities that go along with moving into the ops office, you need to get back on your game in the aircraft. And, uh, and I'll tell you the first... Uh, the first few months there it was humbling because I remembered I used to be really good at hoisting at night with no moon in, in, you know, in, in a little bit of a sea state. And, uh, I was not anymore. So it took, it takes a lot of work, I think, um, uh, to get yourself a lot, a lot of work in the aircraft and outside of the aircraft to kind of get yourself back up to that point where you feel comfortable and really do think of yourself as the chief pilot. So, um, so, that was something that caught me off guard. I think as I came back in, I thought I would just jump back in right where I was probably a little naive. Um, but, uh, but the good thing is, I think if you, if you approach it with the right attitude, um, you can definitely get there and you can, you can set the, you can still set the example, um, and, and, uh, get back to where you were, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's gotta be kind of interesting, especially after extended time out of the cockpit, just getting the personalities and stuff in your wardroom that, that you rely on, like your, uh, your FEB members and uh, trying to get a pulse of where the wardroom's at and what, what you need to focus on.
3: Yeah, I'll tell you, I do have a, a, a funny story on that one or a little bit of funny. Um, the uh, I think the first night that I took ops calls uh, in Humboldt, we had, we got a call. Uh, it was an agency assist for, Probably a 15 year old boy or something like that. He had been out hiking uh, and he fell down a couple hundred feet uh, and landed on a ledge. Uh, so I think the cliff itself was probably like, you know, eight, maybe seven or eight hundred feet tall from the uh, from the rocks down at the water all the way up to the, to the top of it. He fell from near the top of it on this uh, on this trail, a couple hundred feet down and, and kind of onto onto a ledge that he could stand on, but certainly not move around. And uh, so that sounded pretty serious to me, you know, but uh, I, I, as you could tell from what I said about where I've been, um, I've been in Hawaii, but we at the time weren't really doing vertical surface work out there, uh, or at least not much. And um, so I really didn't have much experience with that. Um, nighttime, no illumination. And I got a call from a, uh, an aircraft commander who I'd never spoken to before. Uh, and uh, <laughs> he goes, yeah, I think, I think it's about a medium risk mission. We're gonna head up there, have a look, and see if we can pull this guy off the cliff. And I kind of, uh, I kind of didn't really know any better, so I said, "All right, yep, have, you know, fly safe, have fun, and uh, let me know when you get back." And uh, <laughs> yeah, was this like a two o'clock call though?
2: Like you're just trying to get back to sleep? I mean, or no, no. <laughs> yeah.
3: And uh, and I called the captain. and He goes uh, the, at the Spectre commander at the time, Captain Greg Fuller. Uh, he goes, uh, yeah. So I'm gonna call that high risk. Uh, yeah.
0: Like, okay. okay <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: And he goes. Uh, so who's the crew? And I told him. And he's like, Okay, yeah, they're good to go. But uh, but yeah, you may want to ask them a few more questions. <laughs> <next time. laughs> but uh, but all you know, all ended well. And actually, you got the uh, the the pilot in that story is now uh, now down there in the uh, 65 division. That's Jake Dorsey. He uh, you know heck of a case turned into an air medal for him. But, uh, I was, uh, I was definitely, I think, um, uh, I, I think I was, uh, not, not quite ready for that level of case on the first night of ops calls up there. And, uh, but fortunately, I, I mean, that's, that's why we have the system we have in place, you know, uh, cause you know, I call the skipper and the skipper, uh, has, has maybe a couple more questions, validates that, yep, yeah, that's the right thing to do. Send them out and, and, uh, and we're off, you know,
1: but, uh, yeah, I think I've heard, uh, kind of Jake's quick version of like the beginning of that story, just like a, uh, hello, sir. You don't know me, but I'm an okay pilot and I'm ready for this case. Yeah.
3: <laughs> See, hey, and that man. was all it, that was all it took. I'm a very trusting
1: guy. You're like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: you work for me. You want to go out? Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, okay. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, that's awesome. Uh, Commander Benke, did, you, did you have like a first call as ops that you remember or just, uh, kind of going out and searching or, or any memorable, like early ones?
2: Well, I remember on my, uh, very first one, um, unlike Brendan, I met all my people right away. So I knew who they were when they were calling me, but, uh, uh different styles, I guess, but <laughs> just kidding. The, 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 thing that I came into, a uh, little one thing before I started being my ops boss is Brendan and I both had the opportunity to be, uh, stick buddies at our, um, T course together. So that was very refreshing to get back in the aircraft and get to learn those things. But what I did learn a lot from there was that as I was, Heading to my air station, my AOs and all my FEB that I had there um, were just rock stars. Uh, I, Mike Gillums, Russ Mathis, Mike Flint, uh, Tim Mosier, Derek Lear, and like Hillary Smith. I mean, if you want to talk about rock stars in the 65, these folks were it. And so I, I had a little bit of time before I went into my first call. I think it was about a month into it. I finally got my first call and it was Hillary um, Smith, so one of my head IPs. So they were talking, but it was a lot more issues, not really with the case per se, but more of like the intel and what we were getting from sectors, which sometimes and there's, there's communication drops, right? And um, so I actually drove from my house uh, in Savannah, I think it was like 20 minutes away, oh, no. and it was like 2 o'clock at night. And I was like, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go in. <laughs> you know, like there's too much mm-hmm. back and forth, and I'm just going to go in, I can handle this so my wife can sleep with our uh, newborn that we had. And it was interesting because when I got there, what I didn't realize I had done was that I kind of had broken the trust that I, the pilots might've had with me. Right. Cause I like, I came in there, like it kind of looked like I didn't trust what they were doing is how, like, I didn't really think about that at the time. Right. It's like, no, I'm here. Like, let's talk about it face to face cause I don't trust you talking to me on the phone. Right. And that's not the precedent yeah. I wanted to set when I first yeah. showed up. And I was like, oh shoot. I'm just trying to be here like to be a good team player, you know, and help you get through it. Um, I should have just picked up the phones like uh like Brendan and be like, cool, that sounds great, go. Like, you know, and then we'll <laughs> talk about that later. But um so, it was more so for all forth. the
3: for all the future ops bosses, somewhere in between <laughs> these two is probably where you want Might to. Might be the way to do it. Yeah, <laughs> I would say. So but what I
2: think I learned for so in this case it ended up um we ended up getting to shut down um, from sector. There wasn't enough stuff going on. It, it was really bad Intel. We could have just waited till the morning. It was like a medevac off of a ship. And it was really bad until we got back from like the flight surgeon. Should we really go or not? And it turns out, guess what? The, the person ended up being um, a okay, but it was really weird because I'm like that ops guy. I'm like, Hey, back in the day, I would have been like, Lieutenant. Thank was a, like, let's launch. Like, you know, I'm, I'm good. Let's, let's get up. Who cares? and, um, as I got older, you know, and I thought more about it, like, do we, like, I have four people that I'm in charge of, I'm heading out, like, do they need to go, like, right now, is that the time, and, um,
1: so it's like a medevac, right? through yeah. all
2: those, yeah, it was a medevac, right, so it wasn't like a, a, a search and rescue case, you know, it wasn't like immediate launch, we had a window, and, but the flight surgeon couldn't tell us the exact window, because he didn't really know the nature, but they were on a a cruise ship right that has a medical facility and so like are we getting this person to a higher level of care or are they good where they're at and from a stomach issue like you know we don't know what the issue was so um it was good it was very good teamwork with uh hillary i remember her just coming in like you're here (laughs) in her face just what are you doing and uh she kind of walked me through and it was uh, a good eye opener but definitely between like Brendan said probably between the two cases here probably somewhere in the middle but um, successful again, you know, the, the patient ended up, um, getting the next day, like on a small boat cause they were close enough and end up really being nothing. Um, and so successful, I would say, right. A uh, different means, not an air metal. Seems uh, like Brendan gets all the air metals and the DSCs, <laughs> but, uh, ours, no, know it's still a successful case, I would say.
1: That's awesome.
0: I was just curious, do you guys, uh, have any insight on like, you know, you have a difficult case and, and you may have had something that you Seen before, you know, at, at barbers, uh, where you want to tell the crew what to do, but you also don't want to get into their cockpit, so to say, so they, they know they have the freedom to, to make decisions. But um, was that difficult to get accustomed to, or did you have any trouble with that along the way?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, so with the, with that, like, how do you kind of provide that risk management oversight? How do you how do you assist the crew without while still letting that that pilot in command be in command, right? And I think for me, the answer was, hey, we're all the way up until the point where where we hang up the phone and I say fly safe. Um, we're still discussing things, right? And I'm providing input. You're, you know, you're, you're telling me what your plan is. You're bringing a recommendation. You're telling me, um, you know, kind of where you think the risk and the gain is. I'm maybe coming up with ideas, uh, like, can I bring other assets to bear, you know, is there a better way to do this? Or can I get some more information that's going to give us a better, enable us to make a better risk decision? um, Or what can I do to support you uh, on the mission? Um, Mm -hmm. But once that phone, once we hung up the phone and that, and that TIC is, is walking to the aircraft. I mean, I told, I told my wardroom, like, don't expect me. I'm not going to be calling you on the radio once, once we've done that. Now it's up to you. You know, you know what we talked about, you know, when it's appropriate to deviate from that plan and, you know, let me know afterwards and, and, and that's it, you know? Uh, So I think it's it's a fine balance, right? And I think Drew kind of touched on it, like, Hey, the, the crew may have reacted a little bit negatively because why is the ops boss in here at the unit? I thought this was pretty straightforward. Uh, Don't you trust me? Uh, mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there's absolutely times when it's appropriate for you to get in the car at 2 a.m. and get to the unit, right? And, uh, and I'm not necessarily talking about a mishap either. Um, rough case, you know, um, especially uh, anything, you know, involving kids, uh, that could definitely be one that you want to go in for. Um, if you're not, in my case, I had the benefit. We had our, our sector command center was part of the unit. So a lot of times I would go in there less for the air crew and more for the command center crew uh, because because they can get overwhelmed as well. They can get past saturated especially on the front end of a case um, and if, uh, if the information is not flowing um, I would just go in there to make it easier for them so that they could instead of having to uh, deal with the two phones that are ringing and a radio that's going off and then trying to call and brief me I'd be standing there and you know they could just open the door and brief me when they're ready. Um, so, uh, I'm not sure that quite answers your question, but, uh, but I sure enjoy talking. So maybe, <laughs> know. Maybe, Drew can, maybe Drew can weigh in. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I, I mean, a couple, a couple fold, right? Like, uh, yeah, we always want to be like, I always wanted to be out there, but I always knew that, you know, I had my time in my place. This was like for chance to be a leader in a different sense. Right. Uh, we had a good, an excellent training program, like put together. And all I know is when I sat, I, I would, I don't know, I'd recommend maybe all ops bosses, but I would, I wouldn't sit on like the um, first pilot boards, but I'd always sit on like the AC boards. And uh, the reason I did that is one, to hear the questions, I'll see the, hear the reaction from the pilot that's going on the board. But once they get qualified, I had a whole script I would walk through with them and I would talk to them. But I know that that whole training program that led up to this person being an aircraft commander, I had total faith and what they were going out to do. Cause otherwise I wouldn't have, you know, allowed them. We're not, it's not just a check in the box, right? You've earned this. Mm-hmm. And, and so I wasn't as concerned when they took off. I was more concerned of what information they were getting. And so the second part I would do, like Brendan was saying, like driving in, I made very good relationships with both, with the SMCs at both unit at the Jacksonville and uh, um, Charleston. So captain bear, well now captain Barry was commander bear at the time, that bear, they, I gave them my personal cell phone and the SMC. If something was coming up, they could call me personally before maybe they called my air crews. Like, hey, what do you think about this? If it was like a little bit off in the horizon. Or another thing that I used a lot was we would do, they would just link me in, right? And we would have like the conference call all together, you know, with the crew. So nothing's really being lost and questions are all being answered. And sometimes i just be sitting there in the background. Say, I, don't, I don't have anything, but once they launch, you know, they could call me while the, the crew was in the air to give me heads up or, or of any concerns. One night, I think their radar actually went down, um, at, uh, uh for the SMC and I got on cause we had the, uh, what do they call those things again, Brendan, that you put on, the little chips like the blue trackers. Shout, shout nano. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they had those and I could at my house and I, hopefully you don't still have this, but I would wake up and I would just watch the aircraft, you know, as they're on the SAR case. But, uh, and I tell them, try to vector them around weather sometimes. It was, that was, I, maybe I don't recommend that, but I had total confidence in what they were doing. It was just nice to have that, you know, reassurance that I could just, I don't want to say they were like my children, but that's how I kind of felt right. You know, and I had like, I, I don't, I want to make sure they come back, you know, successful, but, I didn't need to be in their cockpit at all. I, I right. trusted our training program, and, and they were highly successful um, well without me, you know, at being out there. But I was definitely a good sounding board, I felt. It was, yeah. it was my job.
0: Yep. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great point there. I mean, thanks for bringing that up. Just the fact that, you know, we have vetted syllabi and uh, cadre of IPs who, you know, train everybody, including, you know, down to the FPs and ACs training the younger pilots as well. Um, I was always curious, did you ever feel... Like you're missing out. You're jealous of the case that that crew is about to go out on. Uh, I mean, cause I know you don't, you don't stand uh, as much duty. You're not, you're not usually getting the juicy ones while you're getting into that command uh, position.
2: You know, oddly enough for me, I think I had enough close call. Cause I actually got to do like a hitron deployment and some of the stuff out there like, coming back. I think I had my taste of like, you know, all of my thrills and stuff out in Hawaii And Mm -hmm. I think having that time out of the cockpit for a while, let me see the other side. I I actually got a lot more enjoyment out of someone else being successful for a case than me personally doing it. You know, like I had more like trying to write up awards. I wish I had like the DSCs and stuff like Brendan did, but you know, having the opportunity to do that because I really felt, I don't know, I guess uh, selfishly like as a leader, like that's what was my job is to get them motivated to, you know, carry on and, come back and just hear all the successes of them and see them light up. And I could just be in the background. So, a, so I never really got too jealous. Um, I think Brendan and I had enough shenanigans when we were in Hawaii, I guess, <laughs> so when we were flying together. Um, that yeah, maybe, I can, I can, maybe having
3: kids and stuff. I don't know. So. I kind of agree with you. I think uh, part of you always wants to be the one out there, you know, pulling somebody out of the water. But it, it is, it's a different kind of rewarding to – to know that, and, and I think part of it is very similar maybe to what you guys experienced at Mobile as, as instructors, right? Um, you, you may not be, this alarm's not going off for you anymore, um, but the people oh, that you train. Yeah, that's true, I guess. But the people <laughs> that you train and, and everything that goes into making those pilots and getting them out to a unit, right, uh, and and prepping them for their case, when you see their success, it's almost more rewarding right? Um, Because, because, you know, among, you know, a hundred other instructors and flight necks and swimmers and support personnel, like you own a piece of that, right? And, and they brought somebody home to see their family because partly and because of what, of what you did. And so, and like, and I think Drew's analogy uh, kind of, you know, it is, it's like a family, right. And, and not, not in any way demeaning towards pilots or, or any of the people who are on watch, you know, but that relationship is almost for the parents. It's almost like, like, um, like a parent and a child, right. Where you take so much joy in seeing their success and you start to care less and less about what you get to do personally. Right. And, right. um, and so, and I, man, I, as, as difficult, like these jobs are certainly, tr- you know, uh, challenging at times you do sacrifice a lot, but man, they're rewarding, especially when you see, uh, when you see, you see your crews having a good day. Um, and, and that makes honestly, it really does make it all worthwhile. I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I feel the, I feel like the same thing here. I mean, I have been in mobile for a while now. Um, so I I can kind of recognize that, that sentiment just watching, uh, the, the folks I've trained go out and have have success feels very rewarding. It's pretty exciting to see people go out, come back safely, especially when the aircraft isn't always behaving or, or the weather or, or whatever, like you guys are talking about, perhaps the Intel or the sector management's not, not perfect. Um, and and having come back with successes is awesome. Feels really good.
2: Yeah. I mean, even for me, like I, I went through the, we had like the eight hurricanes or whatever coming through Savannah and, you know, Harvey started off and it was just awesome sending my crews to like, you know, uh, Scott Sanborn and, you know, the amazing Scott, and just hearing about all the great things my crew was doing. And I wasn't even there, you know, it's just, but our training and stuff all leaked over, you know, and then another ops wash and another, you know, command got to see what my crews were able to do. And that, that was even more rewarding too, because they weren't even in, you know, I wasn't taking, I would just get the calls at night like, Hey, this is what we did. You know, it was so great. And it was definitely uh one of those rewarding times for sure.
1: That's awesome. Do you guys have any, um, uh, kind of changing gears just a little bit. Do you have any like a tips or any, any comments on good stuff for maybe new ACs or, uh, FPs that are trying to become ACs or, or junior pilots? Like what kind of stuff are you looking for? Um, as like a pilot that's, that's giving you a call in the middle of the night. What, what can what can we do to give you a warm and fuzzy um, when we are given that call? I could use Jake's line like, Hey, I'm a pretty good pilot, but um, what else could we say?
2: You don't know me. Yeah.
1: Drew, <laughs> you, you want, uh, I, I don't know, man. Yeah, yeah, I
2: can, I can try. I mean, I guess it's more, like I said, like it always goes for me, it always goes back to like the, uh, um, to our, our training program. And I think the big thing is like, as you want to become an AC and IP, I think the biggest thing, you got to learn how to do is you got to learn how to receive feedback and you got to learn how to give it. And I don't know how great we are, you know, doing that because when, because sometimes you get some constructive feedback, like my first, like, you know, check fight with Brendan, I got some pretty constructive feedback uh, if I remember from him. And, but it always stuck because I, I don't like to call them negative feedback. It's called deltas, right? Like, what do you need to like improve on? And there's so much things that you can, if you receive it the right way and if you give it the right way, you'll grow that much stronger. Like, especially, I mean, you guys learn this like day in and day out, right. From being, like uh, going on stand visits. If you're just like, you know, the black hatter, no one's going to want to fly with you. Right. You know, they're just going to like, Oh man, this guy's just here to fail me. But now we've changed the culture a little bit where we're learning as we are flying. And that's okay. You know, it's okay to to do that because we're every day you want to go out and, become a, the better you in the aircraft so I think to give me the warm and fuzzy is uh especially when you come in AC is like your judgment like you know if you're going out and you're supposed to be doing the training mission that day and you come back and you just flew with a copilot, if you're not giving me something written up on like how this copilot is progressing you kind of failed both of you you know if you're just going out and just flying the shoreline and whatever you know you're not really progressing right so I I think that's the warm and fuzzy that gets me to that night, you know, like the dark and stormy night that when you call me, Hey, I know what this pilot has been doing, you know, to lead up to this event. And that's what gives me the warm and fuzzy, right? It's not really, uh, at that time, what are you going to say to me? Like, cause I don't need to know your name, <laughs> you know, like, right. uh, I just need to know like what you've done, right? You know, so, um, to get to that point, but Brendan probably has something more eloquent.
1: Yeah, you're even talking about like ACs, not necessarily IPs, just like the whole the whole wardroom is training itself. So yeah, having the ACs fly with the the folks right behind them or the or the nuggets that are just getting out of flight school and getting some sort of feedback is, is uh super valuable.
2: You got it. The only thing that changes for an IP from an AC that I've seen is you could assign off stuff, you know? I mean, really you should be teaching.
1: Yeah, you gotta do more paperwork.
2: Yeah, exactly. You have to do a lot more paperwork. Great. <laughs> so but yeah, I see. Say-
3: I'd say that's, that's absolutely true there, Drew. I think as the FEDs look for candidates to become IPs, I mean, you, you already, you can look around and see the ACs who are already, um, who have already embraced that role and, and are, and are training the next generation. And you know, that's who, that's who's going to be on the short list for, for, uh, to become an IP and an FE for sure. You know, um, as far as I think maybe to go back to like a little bit to your initial question there, like, what do you want from the AC when they call? Um, I think, uh, I don't know. I think I always like, I always like to hear their recommendations, right? Like they lay, lay it all out there. What's the weather? What's your crew? What's, what are you being asked to do? And then, and then tell me what you think, you know? Right. Um, And then and then I'm going to back you up on that decision whether whether I think yeah that sounds good go for it or okay well let's let's get a little more info on this or that first or um, hey, maybe we can wait till daylight or whatever um, and help basically it's you know I think I think the role of the ops officer in that moment is I'm I'm QA and your risk your risk decision but you're the you're the PIC from the time that you know you pick up the call um, so tell me how you want you you know tell me what your mission tasking is and tell me how you want to accomplish it uh, and give me confidence that you're, that you're ready to go out there. And I think Drew touched on that a little bit too. Um, I know we were joking around about my first star case, they're taking ops calls, but on subsequent cases, especially if they were, if, if it was, you know, kind of a, um, a higher risk case. I mean, I'm thinking a lot about that crew and what I know about them. And, um, uh, the, we had a fantastic wardroom out there and, um, but you know, from flying with uh, flying with your pilots and um, from talking to your FEB uh, about how, how people are doing, how people are spending their time in the aircraft, and I think right now, especially with reduced flight hours across the, the fleet, that is even more important. Like we can we cannot be wasting a minute in that aircraft, and um, and the training doesn't have to be just in the aircraft either. I think it, uh, taking the time before and after. Um, you know, a solid brief, uh, having, having a plan for, for your flight, making sure that, um, uh, your entire crew is getting something out of the flight. That's huge. Um, asking flight next, what they need, what res- rescue swimmers, what they need, and maybe not just saying, are you men's complete, but Hey, what do you, what do you need? How long, you know, what kind of training, what, what do you want to get out of this flight? Um, and then on the back end, like Drew said, and that, that debrief and the follow-up is, is huge because, if, if I go on a flight, you know, and I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm a co-pilot or I'm, I'm under instruction in the syllabus, and you don't tell me how I did, I'm going to assume that I did everything great, and that's what I'm going to keep right. doing. So, it it's sometimes a tough conversation, but, um, but you know, with practice it becomes easier, and I think it's crucial to uh, professionalizing uh, our wardrooms and our fleet is is giving that good honest feedback. Um, and then like, you know, like Drew said, being able to take that feedback, we got, you know, what we're doing, this is way too important and there's way too much at stake to let your ego get in the way of you getting better. Right. You, we owe it to our crews, um, to do better, uh, and to, and to kind of swallow our pride a little bit on
1: that stuff. So yeah, at the end um, of your flight, the entire content of your conversation with the other pilot is the, uh, the pink sheet, then, then you're kind of missing the mark. Yeah. You've, you got you've lost you got an opportunity it. for sure. Yeah. Um,
3: I, I don't think I've had a
1: I, I've not had a
3: flight where you know that was flawless or I couldn't learn something yet so if you got nothing for me at the end either that's, that's my issue like I've, I haven't created uh, an environment in that aircraft where you feel comfortable giving me feedback um, or you're just uh, your head's not in it and you, you you haven't been paying attention uh, to what I've been doing right and I mean and we're all our we're all our own um, you know best critic too like I may be making mistakes that nobody else sees. And I think as an ops officer or CO or XO or an IP, if you're willing at the end of the flight to speak up and say, yeah, I know you guys probably didn't notice, but man, I I really, uh, I should have done this instead of that. I could have managed this better. And, uh, um, man, next time I won't do that. Well, that sets the tone and that makes it okay for everybody else in that aircraft to speak up and, uh, and, and kind of, uh, identify those things that maybe they could have done better, you know? And, you know, if at the end they say, hey, sir, no, you didn't do that bad. You know, that's a little, that's a bonus too, you know? Nice.
2: Oh, I would just act like, like my air work and stuff was really bad. and said, no, oh, I was doing this on purpose and see if you would catch me. That's generally what I would do, <laughs> but see if they would call me out. Just different tricks for the trade.
1: <laughs> yeah. I remember um, a Marine in flight school. He wouldn't let us walk away after the brief until we gave him feedback on like his flight uh, or like his instruction. And he would just stand there forever. not, not necessarily something I do personally, but at least like the idea that was kind of interesting. I thought just he, he wanted to receive something from every student that he flew with in, in flight school, which I thought that was kind of interesting.
2: Did he have a K bar on him at the time when he did
1: it? Uh, The Marines are scary. I don't know. I just, you were kind of mean. That's pretty cool though. I mean, I think that goes,
3: that goes to show you, man, you can, you know, Da on their first flight, you can learn something from them, you know, and that's pretty cool that, I mean, as uncomfortable as you made it, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a good, uh, I think well-intentioned for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, commander Banky, what was uh, your most challenging case, uh, or most rewarding case that you had to manage from outside the cockpit as an offspot? That
2: is a good question. Um, I, I would have to say probably my, uh, the one we had one up in Charleston area. They, they launched from the air fact and we picked up eight, uh, eight people. I think they were on a bachelor party was the thing the tide had, of course, gone out and their jet ski, the one jet ski that they had was, (laughs) it was uh, not working. And they had, of course not called until it was, uh, you know, past 1230 at night, right? So uh, I think when the crew got the call, though, they heard party and they thought they heard bachelorette party or something. I don't know if that would really make a difference, but they they took out. And I think just the reward was it was so awesome to hear that the crew, as soon as they took off, they heard heard something totally different. Like we were just going to be vectoring in a small boat because the place they were at was like, you know, accessible for uh, Charleston to get out there. And it ended up being, like, they had to take, like, three or four trips to pick up all the folks, right? Because uh, 65 is such a large beast to, uh, you know, take so many people all at once. Um, that they, uh, they fed them all. But then they were going to take, sorry, they had planned to take four trips. And they got them all in, <laughs> which was crazy, you know. And um, But I think they're a lot smaller. I believe the flight mech went down or the uh, rescue swimmer went down and was poking folks in the belly to see like how heavy they were that's what his <laughs> weighing strategy um but i think so it wasn't that obviously that scary for me because i didn't really hear i got some of the reports back from uh sector while they were out flying. but i think the most rewarding thing was this is a brand new ac uh john megan had just made ac and he had a junior co-pilot with them but it didn't matter right they were qualified and mm-hmm. they were at the air fact, which so they weren't even at home unit. You know, they were up in Charleston. They launched, they did it. And, you know, all eight people, you know, like saved. And it was one of those gratifying things as a uh, parent, right. You know, like, wow, like we just made this guy AC and he had a couple struggles, but this guy is awesome, you know, and, um, that I would think it was probably my most rewarding case I would say.
0: Yeah. Uh, sounds, like, okay. sounds like a great one. Um, I'm guessing Commander your hat might be the uh, Derek Chamell case up in uh, Trinity Alps.
3: That was certainly a lengthy uh, discussion on risk management, and that was one where I drove into the unit for sure. Uh, I probably talked to, um, it was interesting, there were probably three different incident command posts on that uh, on that actual case. Uh, there was the, the sheriff's office who's responsible for um, kind of search and rescue for that county, there was the National Forest Service incident commander who was responsible for actually fighting the fire. And then, uh, there was the medical side as well. So it wasn't really what you think of as a true incident command post. It was just a bunch of ICs working different aspects of the same issue. Um, mm-hmm. it was, it was challenging. I certainly made some, uh, some errors, but, um, but man, what, a, what a fantastic job that crew did. Uh, I did not sleep a wink that entire time. Uh, and, uh, I fully expected that we would be, um, towing an aircraft home that night, um, from somewhere out, out in the middle of nowhere, out in the middle of Northern California. Um, so the fact, the fact that they did what they did and kept that aircraft in limits and saved those two guys lives was amazing. And I don't know if they told you on the previous podcast, but, Um, I think it was somewhere between five and seven years prior, one Ridge over, they had a firefighter die on a similar case, uh, same injury, broken femur. Um, and we were, we, the coast guard had gotten requested on that case and we were just too slow, uh, through no fault of our own. We got requested very late in the game, but we were, we were not able to get that firefighter, uh, to, to help in time. And and unfortunately he didn't make it. And, um, I remember, uh, Derek telling me after that case, he was talking to, uh, some of the local firefighters. They slept on the, on the couch in the firehouse up there in Weaverville that night. And, uh, I mean, they, they remember that they know that guy by first name. And so it's pretty, it's pretty amazing, uh, what those guys did. And mm-hmm. man, I was glad, I was super glad to be a part of that and to be able to help them achieve what they did.
1: Yeah. If you haven't heard the the full story from the crew's perspective, um, the other, uh, two part podcast is, is absolutely fascinating. I I definitely didn't know half the details before talking to them. It is wild, very high risk. Yeah. And let me, I will say
3: this to kind of circle back to what we were talking about before. I don't think I could have flown that case. Um, but I knew Derek could do it. Uh, and, and, and how did I know that I had flown with him on a bunch of, uh, kind of I hate to use the term throwaway, but you know, a throwaway RT one five, like there's nothing. It's, it's one of those flights where you can show up and you can be like, Hey, what do you guys need? Nothing. Okay. Well, like, kind of like what drew was saying, let's go fly the beach. Maybe we'll get a quick approach in and, uh, and then we'll call it a day. You know, um, I had been out on those with Derek before and, um, and, and I'm not, this is true of a lot of our pilots up there. Um, he, I saw him challenge himself. Uh, He's a HATS grad, AHARS grad. I saw him on a normal pattern flight applying HATS principles. And and I don't think it was just because he was flying with me. Uh, In talking to other pilots, I knew he he trained hard, and he held himself to a high standard always. And so that was one thing that gave me the confidence to know that he could do that. The other thing that I had seen, I had seen him – uh, you know, we were talking about that point where the ops officer says, OK, sound, sounds like a plan. Fly safe. Call me when you get back or if you need anything. Right. And then, you know boom. the person's name or not. Right. Like it yeah, matter. whether you do or not. Now, see, I've been there long enough. I knew Derek. Uh, <laughs> once you hit that point and you cut them loose. Right. That's very difficult for us as pilots to arrive on scene and see someone who needs help and decline to conduct a hoist or mm-hmm. uh, or determine that we are not the right asset. We'll stand by, um, but I had seen Derek do that on another on another case. It was a uh, a car over uh, busted through a guardrail on another one of those sea cliffs, and it was it was uh, it looked like it was fairly solidly embedded, being held up by some trees. But they had another couple hundred feet down to some rocks. Uh, the person I believe was conscious and screaming in the car. Uh, they could, I, if I'm not mistaken, they could even hear it uh, possibly over the radio, or the firefighters were telling them a lot of pressure to make that happen. Right. Um, but I saw, I, you know, in that case, I saw Derek show up on scene, evaluate it and say, Hey, you know, this, this, that we're, we're not sure on that car, if it's secured, if it's going to move, we don't know the condition of the patient. We're talking about doing a direct deployment of arrest of the rescue swimmer to a vertical surface. I mean, that with a car that could continue falling. And we've got a ropes team, uh, a fire department ropes team that's setting up and i think it took a lot for him to be to say hey i think i can do this but i don't think it's smart for me to do this that 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 high angle rescue team is trained and equipped to do this that's the safer option we'll stand by and provide cover until until they have the vehicle secured and we know that nobody's going to fall further you know and so i think <clears throat> Sorry, I would I say Brendan
2: of, for that, and Brendan, I would say for that, like probably what's everybody in his crew like probably saying like, hey, let's do it, let's do it. You know that pressure to.
3: I think there know, was. In time. fact, it's it's interesting you say that because I think there was, and I um I don't know how how much pressure there was on him from the rest of the crew. Uh, he was the PIC, um, but I so I say that as uh, those things that you look for as an ops officer, you look for somebody who's training hard, who's proficient, and who has the skill to do something. But also someone who has um, the judgment, the on-scene initiative, and, um, and, and just kind of that right mental attitude and the courage to say no when it's appropriate to say no and to risk a lot when it's appropriate to risk a lot. And so, um, uh, yeah, so that's, I guess, uh, that's my thoughts on that case. So in kind of contrast to that first one where I didn't really know Jake at all and I was just kind of taking him at, at his word. And fortunately, um, I was right. He, he was the right guy to fly that case for sure. Um, on Derek, I think I, I would classify, uh, classify myself as a more mature and better ops officer at that point who knew my crew and, uh, who understood my AOR. Uh, most of the, I, I underst- had a better grip of, of what our partners capabilities were. And so I think I made that or that recommendation to the boss, uh, with, with a lot more context. And a lot more um uh a lot more confidence and, and and I think it was uh, it turned out to be the right call. So um, Yeah. So yeah, that best best case out there I think for sure.
0: Okay. Uh, I mean that was great too. And you, you summarized it so well, sir, with you know, the highlights. Train hard, study, challenge yourself, uh, exercise good judgment and no one to say no. I mean, those no are some big highlights that I would think if I'm an ops spot some days I'd be looking for as well.
1: Yeah, I, I like that you hit on to the uh, the flight hour reduction that we're seeing, uh, unfortunately, across the sixty five community with no end in sight right now. And uh, yeah, I think that I think that if you are going out on that all scheduled two sortie and you land at one point seven, uh, you 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 had some gas and time you kind of should have used uh, or could have used at least to do some more interesting training. You know, like don't go to the closest airfield and just bang out a uh, an RT one. Try to do something. Find something interesting to do.
2: Right. And that Definitely. all comes with like having, having a plan before you even show up to the aircraft. Right. I mean, like it, it takes a lot harder to like put a whole scenario and get a whole plan put together to and, and then execute it. And just that extra due diligence ahead of time, especially now with a limited amount of hours, right. You have, you have to thoroughly plan out what you need to do.
1: Absolutely. Um, not to uh, keep putting you on the spot, but, uh, Commander Hillary, how is um how, if any, has has your perspective changed as you've moved seats to the uh, the CO role um, compared to being the ops boss?
3: Oh, uh, let's see. I think um, you set it for success, so I mean <laughs> that helps. Yeah. So I think I mean organizationally I don't I don't think I always understood why we did things the way we do in the Coast Guard as far as what's you know what is a pre-command billet and why are you doing that before you get you're eligible to, to sit in this seat you know um, I'm much I'm much more appreciative of the of the preparation that I had uh, and not that I would have wanted to come here directly necessarily I, I don't think to be quite honest with you I don't uh, like the co job was not something where I was a nugget and I was like I'm going to be a co one day. Uh it never really crossed my mind. I was kind of like just looking a little bit shorter term like well I sure uh, I'd, I'd like to upgrade and you know do cool stuff and save some people and then you kind of as you move through the organization it kind of funnels you in that direction a little bit and at some point I was like wow yeah I guess that's that's the next logical step. That'd be uh that'd be amazing if I could get one of those jobs but um but in any case, I guess to answer your question, um, I think as we all come up, our, our perspective changes. And I, I guess I kind of was touching on it there a little bit. Your first tour, you're focused on flying and some collateral work, right? Um, and then as you, as you continue to progress, you're still focused on flying, but that should be coming easier to you by now. So now you're focused on, on again, more of that officership and leadership within at the unit. But you're probably not looking outside the unit that much, as you get to be the OPSO, I think, and probably AOPS a little bit. Like what Drew was talking about, you're interacting with SMCs. You're trying to figure out how different different sectors SAR, are, um, who's who at district, uh, who's responsible for what. How do you how do you meet the boss's operational intent both at the unit and then you know obviously at the district or area level depending on your unit? Um, how do you balance uh, scarce resources? develop your pilots and not just like, get them, you know, develop your pilots for the unit that they're at, but start thinking, you know, a tour down the road, like, okay, good portion of them are probably going to Atlantic city and, and Hitron. Uh Am I providing a quality aircraft, junior aircraft commander to those units is my training plan or my training program at the unit set up for that. Like, yeah, we need them to be proficient and ready to prosecute start tonight night, but there's more beyond that. Right. And then I think as you get to the CO job, it becomes um, you start, it's it's very similar as you're moving up as a pilot, right? Like first, you're, you're very much focused on flying. And then I think uh, as the more senior you get, the it requires less of your effort to be proficient in the aircraft and you spend less of your time focused on that. And I think the same holds true for this job where I'm still very much focused on flying. I can screw a lot of things up, but if we hurt an air crew, I've failed. Um, so that, that's always going to be the primary uh, focus but we're also looking at things like command climate, right? Like uh, I've got a lot of other departments here and I'm, and I'm very interested in what's going on in all of those other departments um, to make sure that not, not just, uh, you know, we're doing operations safely and effectively, but the unit is a healthy, um, healthy and effective place to work. And then, and then I guess kind of like I was saying with the ops officer, it's pretty important that I understand what my boss's operational intent is and, and, and probably even a couple levels above that, right? Like, so I, I need to know what the district commander expects out of me, but it's probably a good idea for me to know what his boss expects out of him or her, um, so that I can help feed that information so that I can set our unit goals to kind of
1: facilitate that strategic vision that the higher level leadership has. And, uh, what piece of advice have you received over the years, uh, prior to becoming a, an ops boss or a CEO that is? Proven the most valuable to you.
2: Well, I say for me, I, I got really lucky with uh, having um, uh, a great mentor. Uh, he's out now, Captain uh, Tom Meyer, and I kind of followed him around a little bit. But he always encouraged me to be myself, and um, which maybe uh, Brendan might be uh, sliding away from that. Maybe that's not the best thing for me to be. But I think there was what he was trying to get at was. You can't be, you have to be your authentic person. You can't just try to be somebody else, right? Because that's not who you are. You are, I am Drew, you know, Drew Bankey. And with that, what he would always lead me to was, and it it carried over to the aircraft was know your limits. You know, the the command is set theirs. They would have like, you know, like uh, we have a, we had a local 3710 there at Savannah. Um, So they set their limits, right? What they want, but myself, like, so in my personal life and in the aircraft, I have to know my own limits, right? And set those. And then obviously know your, your book knowledge and always know what to execute and why you're executing it. But I think the biggest number of advice to sum that up was be myself, know your limits and, you know, hold to those. And, you know, when it's a good time to break away, but uh, great mentors, I would really uh, throw that out to the listening audience there is find a mentor, find somebody that you respect. And uh, it, it doesn't even have to be an aviation community, um, but, you know, find someone that you would like to emulate and you know definitely uh um i'm open you know send out my uh, phone number or something i'll be at the ldc if uh anybody wants to talk to me but i think i'll reach out uh, i definitely that definitely helped me out (laughs) (laughs) cool that's all
3: i got hey drew i think that's a uh, that i really like the uh the be yourself i think that's a great advice that's great advice not just for opsos or cos or exos but anybody in a leadership position like we look around and, and like you mentioned, Tommy, as a mentor, I think we all have people that we, whether you call it a mentor or not, people that you look up to and you learn from and you're like, man, I want to be like that. I think that's healthy. And we definitely need to do that. But yeah, it, it is important to be yourself because nothing comes through quicker, you know, uh, to the, to your crew or to the people you're working with. If you're trying to be something you're not, you know? Um, and, and with that, like as as you get into these positions, the organization puts you there for a reason, right? You may, you know, your flaws better than anybody else, uh, but you gotta be yourself. Um, and I think the other thing with that, uh, I had somebody tell me once I, I'm my per I'm personally kind of a a black and white guy. I, I feel like, um, so if I'm going to make a decision, I want to know, Hey, what, what, where, what does policy say on this? And what, you know, um, I want to find, I want to find the reference on that. And, uh, and I think this, uh, the senior officer recognized that in me and he's like, Hey, you're in this job for a reason. Trust your gut. If it, you know, you don't always have to find that, you know, it, find that chapter and verse of where it says this or that. Now it's, I mean, it is important to know, you know, what policy says and, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, but don't, don't use it as a crutch, use good judgment and follow your gut. If something doesn't feel right, it's probably not right. Um, and, uh, the only other things I'll add to that, um, I had another, another person tell me once you got to, uh, uh, you got to be honest with yourself, with your boss and with your family, uh, when it comes to, uh, and that's more career, I think, and just general, uh, you know, as you move through the organization, um, like don't, don't be afraid to tell your boss what you want. Um, and, but make sure that you're, fam- you know, you're having that discussion with your family and, and that it's what you really want too. Because if, if you don't have those conversations, um, one of those three is going to be disappointed, right? Um, so just, just be upfront and uh, work hard, do good things and, uh, and, and don't sweat the rest. And then I guess kind of with that, I'll say I use the term family loosely there. It doesn't have to be a regular family, just with the people you love and that matter to you. But man, if you, if you do end up in one of these, op, an ops Excel or CO job, or even an AOPs ops job, um, there's a lot of, they're very, very rewarding and I wouldn't do it any other way. But, it is very demanding of your time, right? And I think Drew was kind of joking about that a little bit as we, uh, as we started, you're on the phone a lot and the kids are in the background and, and, uh, and they notice, right? That's it. It's, uh, it, it's demanding of your time and, and probably more, uh, more importantly of your family's time. So I only say that because, um, it's important to take that to, to take time away from the job too. Make sure, uh, make sure you're taking care of your family and taking care of yourself. And, uh, and it's not a bad thing to pass the calls to the junior guys Mm -hmm. and, uh, and let them get a taste of it too. And so that, uh, so that that next generation is ready when they, when they,
0: uh, they get tapped for these. So yeah, I I got all I got. I got one more burning question. I have to ask the two of you. How much sleep do you get as an hops boss?
2: Oh man. Uh. I don't know. If the audience wants to know about that. <laughs> oh, we gotta I mean, know, so, sir. We gotta I mean, tell so, us. We, we, all we've been talking about a lot, right? It was like these cases, right? At night, like I have to say, like eighty percent of the time, you get eighty to eighty-five percent of the time, I get called is not to do with the SAR case. It was have to do with the aircraft breaking at the back like you know, at the air fac or some a personnel issue, you know, like a, a something else going on. I mean, and it was the phone was attached to my hip, so it was. Uh, it's very minimal. I mean, I think people joke about it and they would say maybe it's a right of honor, like a badge of honor. Um, it, you, you don't expect to sleep all that much. Uh, but I like, like, like Brendan said, though, pass the calls. What's wrong with that? You know, there's no machoism or anything out there. Like pass the calls. We're, we're supposed to develop like, you know, obviously you don't pass it to anybody. Hopefully you know their name. Um, when you do pass the calls off to them, but it's, <laughs> I, I got very minimal. I, I uh, it was funny. I, I think um, uh, my, when I, my first experience, like, you know, I had two different CEOs when uh, I was there at Savannah and it, it didn't matter. Like, you know, both of them, someone wanted more information than others, but you know, it's just that on stop. Like you got calls from both directions, right. From like, you know, from below you, like calling you and then calls from the top. So very minimal sleep as an boss. Now as a CEO I think Brendan just sleeps all the time. My understanding was uh, as a skipper, but I'll let him.
3: I, that. I, I probably woke up. I probably woke up like 30 minutes before this phone call started. So <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. Life is good. Life is good. <laughs>
0: all right. Well, thank, thank both of you uh, very much for sharing this insight. This is great um, and, and really excited we can bring this to our listeners.
3: Appreciate the time. Yeah. Yeah. Hey hey guys, this has been great. Thanks for having us. I think um, this was a great uh, initiative uh, out of Mobile. And uh, I think this episode in particular, I think, uh, you know, and not just because we're on it, I think it's going to be a great one. So thanks again. Yeah, you bet.